Okay, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And we're going to look, be looking at, at least starting at verse number 14. In this first part. So let's read, follow along as I read verse 14 through 19 in Ephesians chapter 3. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for this passage. I pray, Lord, that you would impress it upon our hearts, for it is a prayer that we are all in need of. And I just ask you, Lord, that it would be something we also experience as we grow in our Christian walk. So help us now to begin to grapple with this text and see what it says, and then apply it to ourselves. In Christ's name, I pray, amen. Actually, this passage of Scripture is Paul's second prayer. The last time I left you in Ephesians, or we left off in Ephesians, I left you with this thought, that to know the love of Christ is the greatest riches of all. How great a happiness must it be to the object of the love of Christ? the one who is the creator of the world by whom all things consist, the one who is exalted at Christ's right hand and made head over all principalities and powers in heavenly places, the one who has all things under his feet, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is the brightness of the Father's glory. I mentioned that we never... Really, there never was any such love as Christ's love towards believers. But, see, the point here in this passage is, have we experienced that? In fact, the, the prayer request in this passage is really getting to, which I won't get to today, is for us to have the ability to comprehend the love of God. So the love of God goes way past the babe in the manger and even Christ dying on the cross. It goes way deeper and the prayer is so we understand how much God actually loved us. And surely, as I mentioned last time, to be loved by him is enough and should be enough to satisfy your soul. Because when a sinner finds Jesus Christ, it is like one who's traveling through the desert, consumed with thirst, and at the last finds a river of cool water and that cool water is Christ and so the sinner decides no other drink once he finds Christ he has found that which is so excellent so great 
that he looks no further for anyone else because he has found one who will satisfy his soul, his heart, his mind, his soul finds rest there in Christ. Now why is that? Because, because he, has not, he has not just found cool and clean water. He has found an ocean suitable to satisfy the longing of his souls forever. Forever. So, in verse number 14, it says, For this reason. For what reason? Well, this is Paul's response to the great truths about the plan and the purpose of God. That God caused the apostle to respond in humble prayer in behalf of the Ephesians. So it quickly brings our mind again to the attention and the matter of prayer. This is the second time prayer is brought to our attention in this epistle. And there is not much, at least for the Apostle Paul, that could hinder his prayers. In fact, Paul was in prison, remember. He was bound with chains, and his basic freedoms were taken away from him. But he wasn't rendered powerless or useless because he can still go on praying and that's what he does in fact from you for for you and i from time to find time we may find ourselves ill we may find ourselves confined to a sick bed but remember it's a good opportunity when that happens to take full advantage of the great ministry of intercession it's a great time for you to pray for others to pray for yourself to pray for the work of god but brethren, I believe the greatest danger that comes to us is when the church doesn't take prayer seriously, especially seriously enough to schedule in their day, in their week, and even to meet for the public prayers of the gathered assembly, to meet with God's people to pray to him is so vitally important at any time in human history and especially in the day and age in which we live. So to take this into consideration this morning, that prayer is as necessary to the Christian as preaching and teaching. They are all essential for our spiritual growth. So we are to pray for one another. This is God's will. He uses our prayers to bring about His great purposes. And if you notice in our text that the posture of prayer is an important matter because prayer is actually coming face to face with the Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So the chosen posture, at least for this particular prayer, because the body does reflect the soul's attitude and reverence before God. And in this case, he's bowing his knees. And it indicates that he is humble before God. To kneel with heart and thoughts being directed to God is a display of our dependency upon God. Uh, it's, it's a display of our humility. And specifically about all that is in the heart and the mind about what God has done in behalf of sinners, in your behalf for your salvation. That should always be in our mind when we pray. And of course, 
he is praying on his knees here. That is not the only way to pray. You see all kinds of postures of prayer in Scripture, people lifting up holy hands, having their face to the ground, but in this case, he's kneeling before God. And he's kneeling before God about this great plan of salvation that God revealed unto him that he's able to reveal now unto the Gentiles and to fulfill God's mission in the world. But careless and thoughtless attitudes of body for believers are not good. Sure, we can drop to our knees in a mechanical way and and, and in a formal way. I've done that many times in my pre-conversion state and speak some religious words and but but in many cases the heart's far from the Lord. The heart is not filled with the knowledge of God. Uh, If it is not then prayer really cannot be had in the way Paul describes it here. See there is a, a sense that prayer can be taken for granted of as a believer. And here in Scripture, he bows his knees in order to come face to face before God. In that word, he says, I come before the Father. So, who does he bow before? He describes him further in verse 15. He says this, For whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Now, if you quickly read that passage, you could conclude that the Creator, God, is the father of all people. Now that is true in, in some sense, like in Acts 17, 29, where Paul, be f- preaching to pagans, says that being then the offspring of God, and he begins to communicate to them, finally, Jesus Christ. But it is not what is happening here. This term family means descendants from one father. Also in Ephesians 3, 9 and 2, 18, Uh, In those passages, it's used, the Father is used by way of describing salvation. Soteriologically, it is used. That is, the only way we can have access to the Father is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you notice also, one part of the family is in heaven in verse number 15, and one part of the family is on earth. Now that, you know, that means that it rules out several things. Firstly, it rules out any fatherhood and any idea of a family that is merely linked to God as creator. He's not talking about the father being creator of all humanity here. And it also rules out any fatherhood of two families. The father of Israel and the father of the rest of the nations or the Gentiles that would come to Christ. Here it is referring to Jews and Gentiles in one family unit as believers. In other words, they're children of God. So no longer should we think of ourselves as merely separate groups of people once we come to Christ. We have a vital connection now. We have a vital connection. That connection is Christ. We are to think of ourselves as children of God who belong to God's greater family connected to those who are already in heaven and to those who are remaining on earth. And and that is in any given generation uh, that we are family with one common father and we only have access to the father in and through the Lord Jesus Christ that's it, period, alone. We, we cannot have ac- access to God at all, except it is through Christ Jesus. So then, let, let us never forget who we are approaching when we pray. 
And let us never forget with what conduct and manner we approach our Father when we do pray. That we should not come to prayer flippantly or carelessly or in in a silly way, but in a very sober way. Who are we coming to when we pray? So in this second prayer request, Paul brings our attention to what should be the constant occupation of believers' minds. The constant occupation of your mind. What is the constant occupation of your mind anyway? Is it money? Is it success? Is it family? Is it what's going on around you in the world? What is the occupation of your mind? If we as believers are to receive nourishment for spiritual health and fruitfulness, then we must all pray that we should constantly be occupied with the deep, deep love of Christ. Even though his love is far above the grasp of our finite minds. The Holy Spirit does and can give us a growing conception of it. So here's the content of the prayer, and let's take a look at it. Now, now, out of this inexhaustible wealth of our great God, the intercession is for the giver of all good things to his children and for his children, and to give the necessary gifts to accompany our Christian growth. In other words, that Lord doesn't want us to stay in one place as believers. He wants us to keep growing. And I want you to take notice that this, his request here, it is not about material blessings. Usually we go and ask God about material things. Lord, I need this, I need that. Lord, I need good health, I need this. And we go that, and it's all material things. It's all about ourselves. But here he is requesting something that is exclusively spiritual. And that's what we ought to do too. Our prayer requests should be spiritual things. Because these are the things, number one, we don't usually understand, and these are the things only God can do. There's no formula, there's no book we can read, there's no three points in a poem poem that are going to solve our issues spiritually, but it is exclusively spiritual. The great concern he has, and I have, and you should have, is about your spiritual growth and development, about your knowledge of God, about your relationship to him, and your experience, yes, experience, and enjoyment of God. That's where he wants to bring us. Matter of fact, that's where our Christian walk by the Spirit will bring us. It will bring us to the place that our knowledge of God will increase, our relationship with him will become more intimate, and our experience with God and enjoyment of God will become a reality. Not just going through motions. Not just repeating by rote some truth, some doctrinal truth that you know. But no, you know it by experience. You are experiencing, experiencing God in your life. That when you kneel down and you pray, God is answering you. He is listening to you. 
So some people say there's three petitions. In fact, I think the title of my message was three essential prayer requests, but most likely there's just, just two in the text. Some of the, what's listed here is the result of the prayer. And so let's look at these. I'm going to look at just the first one and its result, because that's all the time we'll have for this morning. But here's the first one. Here's the first request. And, and in my words, the first request is this, that the Father would grant you and me to be infused with strength and power in the inner man by his spirit. Look what it says in verse 16, that he would grant you, give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, this prayer request is for we Christians to become stronger in the inner man. Now, did you know that you even had an inner man? Well, if you are hearing it for the first time, it is the word of God that brings this truth to your attention. And the Apostle Paul brings this to light also in several, matter of fact, two other places in the word of God. One of them is found in Romans 7.22. You don't have to turn there. But in Romans 7.22, Paul is dealing with, with the struggle with sin and the flesh and the spirit. And he says finally in, in Romans 7.22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. See, something happens when we become a Christian that our inner man becomes alive before it was dead. It didn't respond to the things of God. Now we have an inner man an inner person that is responding to the things of God. So this is what Paul concludes, that I'm struggling outward with sin, I'm struggling with the flesh, but he says that there's two men that he's talking about in this text, one being dragged down by the law of God, but the other, he says, the inner man delights in the law of God. That now the inner person, the inner person is delighting in God. See, that's where salvation is going to bring us. It's going to bring us to the place that we are delighting in who God is. Not what God can give us. Not what God can do for us. What God has done for us, yes, but who God is in his deep love towards his children. And there's another passage. I, I want you to quickly turn to this one. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Paul again says to the Corinthian church this about the inner man. He says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Why, don't, why doesn't he lose heart? But through though our outward man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now here he begins to describe a little bit more that we do have an outward man. Everybody has an outward person, right? The outward person is the body, right? And the body, of course, very clearly, the outward person is decaying. Did you notice that lately? You are decaying. You're falling apart, man. And there's not much you can do about it. You are getting older. Gravity begins to win out. Things get pulled down. Uh, the strength and vitality seems to get zapped. But he notice here, but yet in the inner man, it's renewed every day. As your body is decaying and heading for the grave, your inner person is growing more zealous, more knowledgeable, more lively, 
more aware of God and his presence in your life. That the inner man is the spiritual part of our being. It is the part where God dwells and works. It is equivalent to the heart, the mind, the emotions, the will. But that is not what he uses here. He uses this inner man word. Because I think the inner man is really guided by spiritual senses that it never had before. Even in the Old Testament. In other parts of the Bible, you find that when somebody has contact with the true and living God, there's something that is different about them. For example, example, uh, uh, David in the Psalms, he says this in Psalm 119.18, that the inner man can see. He says, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things of your law. Right? He, he wants to see more. He's, he's anxious to see more of what God is and who God is. And then the inner man can also hear in the book of Revelation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That the inner man can taste. It says in Psalms, oh, taste and see the Lord is good. See, this is what the inner man, man wants. He wants all these things. He has these spiritual appetites he never had before. And he wants to know who God is. So the inner man can also be disciplined, it can be exercised, and it can be trained. Paul told Timothy in Timothy 4.7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for what? For the purpose of godliness or being godlike. Also, the inner man wants to be fed. It was Jesus who says, but he answered and said, to, said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's what the inner man wants. The inner man wants to hear from God. And also the inner man wants to be cleansed. It was David who says, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be wired in the snow. In the New Testament, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, we confess our sins he is faithful and just and, and righteous to forgive us our sins and what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is this? Because a, a man, a person knows in the inner man that to be approaching the holy God of the Bible, there must be a cleansing. And of course, that cleansing comes by the blood of Christ. But there's a daily cleansing. And that cleansing comes when we confess our sins. We're making it known to God that we are alive to our sin and we want to confess it because we know it offends him and we want that the efficacious power of the cross to cleanse us that day of any uncleanness that came about in our life because of our sin. The outer man is just that. It's merely directed by the five senses. It corresponds to the things of the world. It, 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 it hears, it smells, it tastes, it touches, it, it has sight. But this natural man, this outward man, is, is usually overwhelmed by the things happening around him in the world. Because that's all he has. He's falling apart according to Scripture. He's perishing. He doesn't know anything about the inner man that is being renewed day by day because his inner man is dead to God. He's not live to the things of God. And usually what happens in the end, he escapes to drink and drugs and pleasures and vices of all types to find some kind of satisfaction and contentment in this life on the earth. So the outer, outer man senses 
in the end a hopelessness about life. A lack of purpose, a lack of fulfillment. And they are usually left in, in a spirit of despair and, and often depression. But the believer is, is aware of his inner man. He's been made alive in Christ. So the prayer in Ephesians is that we believers would be infused with strength and power by the Holy Spirit in the inner man to resist the world, to resist the flesh and the passions of the flesh and the lust of the flesh, and to be able to resist the power, the deceptive power of Satan that will come against us because now we are in Christ. All of which wants to keep us down and discouraged and hopeless. That's what it wants to do, and Satan does those things well. If I'm describing you, you need to perk up and pay attention this morning. So you see, because of this struggle we have against sin, the world and Satan, we need. This is what we need. This is the prayer request for for me. This is the prayer request for you, for all believers. We need to be strengthened and renewed in the interior of our beings by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we Christians can grow to a greater height than we are at presently. So we should never, ever, ever be satisfied about what we know or where we're at with the Lord ever in our Christian life. We should always have this sense that I don't know enough, I don't know the Lord enough, I have, the Lord doesn't have control of my life enough, and so therefore it goes on. Because in our text, as I read it, if we believe, as our text says, that Christ can dwell in our hearts and that we can know the love of God and of Christ in all its dimensions, and that we may be filled with the fullness of God, then we must go on to greater levels of spiritual growth. And not be stagnant. And not be stuck in the mud. And not be going around this vicious cycle and not having any results about what God's doing in our life. No, he's saying here, pray. Prayer is the vehicle in which opens up the wealth of God. Because if you notice in our verses here, it says for this reason, he says in verse 16, that, we, that he would grant you according to his riches, the riches of his glory. That it's coming from the wealth of God, the storehouse of God, that The inner man needs to grow from being a baby to a strong man to a spiritual mature believer that the inner man needs to grow strong in discernment in order to resist and stand against the flaming missiles of the devil and that the inner man needs to have a good balance, a good spiritual diet in which he is feeding on the meat of the word as it is heard, as it is read, as it is digested, and then as finally as it is appropriated into our daily life. So in short, Paul's primary concern is to pray for a display of God's mighty power in the domain of our being that controls our character and ultimately prepares us for heaven. Why? In order that Christian lives would be reflecting would reflect rejoicing and being a good testimony and witness while they're on this earth. If we cannot be strong 
on our own and we cannot be strong on our own then it must be granted to you because in verse number 16 that he would grant you that he would give you that God would grant you this and would God hold this request back from his children absolutely not this is a guaranteed request that if you get down on your knees and ask God for it, he will give it to you. And I believe it does come out of the frustration of, look, I've been a Christian for this long and I really haven't grown. I haven't gotten rid of this sin yet. This attitude is still driving my life. These old practices and habits are still there and they're still dragging me down. See, those things need to be gone from your life. So if we cannot be strong on our own, it must be granted to us by the Father that the Spirit of God, in a sense, takes our spiritual concrete and makes it stronger by reinforcing it with steel rods. So you develop deep, strong convictions that are based on truth and that you don't become so introspective, it cripples yourself, but you become a person of rejoicing because every day you wake up, you realize what God has done for you and how much you don't deserve it and how much more you need to know about what he's doing in your life because God's huge and the knowledge of God is tremendous. It's going to take an eternity and we'll never know and find out everything about God even when we're in heaven. He is so vast. So don't ever think, I got, I got it all down. And all your knowledge can fit in a little shoe box, or maybe even smaller than that. You know, one of those little tooth boxes that you give your kids when they lose a tooth? That's, the, that's our knowledge of God. That's not good. So this is Paul's prayer request. And this is, should be our prayer request. Making us, when we pray it, even stronger, less likely to crack and fall apart as believers. So why does Paul pray? That Christians might know more of God's power? Well, we can find the answer right in the next passage because the next passage, we observe the purpose found in that prayer request. Here's the purpose, and you're going to be surprised by what the purpose is because look what he says in verse 17. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, I want to take that first part and look at that because you already are thinking, wait a minute, so that Christ may, be, may dwell in your hearts through faith? Aren't these people Christians and they need the Spirit of God? Hey, I thought Christ was already in my heart when I believed. Well, he, he is. So that means it's not talking about the first indwelling of the Spirit when you confess and believe in Christ. It's not talking about that. This is talking about people who are already believers. But they're missing something. Christ is not dwelling in their hearts through faith. So the key here is to find out, well, what, well then what does this mean? Well, the word dwell here, it says, so that Christ may dwell is actually a word that means to settle down or to inhabit or, of course, here to dwell. And it's put in the tense of a verb that means to have full possession as one uses the whole house in, one, in which one dwells in. In other words, if I could say 
say it simply that Christ wants to dwell in all the rooms of your heart. Sounds a little strange to say it like that. But the word denotes a permanent habitation as opposed to sojourning or an occasional visit. God doesn't want to occasionally visit you in your life. He wants to permanently indwell you. So the Spirit strengthening us in the inner man produces the result that Christ dwells in our heart. This is not the first entrance of the Holy Spirit, but the further indwelling that is due to the strengthening we receive through the Spirit by the Word of God, that Christ takes possession of us even in a greater degree, whereas to make our hearts his home. Now, let me just illustrate, illustrate it from an illustration actually from D.A. Carson's book on prayer. That I thought he, he illustrated this well where he, he says that, okay, don't make this difficult. Just picture a couple carefully marshalling enough resources to put together a down payment to buy a house. They buy their house and recognizing full well that it needs a fair bit of work, which most of our houses do when we first buy them. They can't stand the black and silver wallpaper in the master bedroom. There's mounds of trash in the basement. The kitchen was designed for the convenience of the plumber and not the cook. The roof leaks in more than one place. The insulation barely meets minimum standards. The electrical box is too small. We turn on the toaster and the lights go out. The lighting in the bathroom is too poor. The heat exchanger in the furnace is corroded, but still, in this young couple's uh, hearts, this is their fo- first home, and they are grateful. Months slip by, years slip by, and the black and the silver wallpaper has been replaced with tasteful pastel patterns. That the couple has remodeled their kitchen, doing much of the work themselves. That the roof no longer leaks, and the furnace has been replaced by a more powerful unit that includes central air conditioning. The grounds are neatly trimmed, and they even boast about a a rock garden that they didn't have there before. 25 years go by, and after the purchase, and the husband one day remarks to his wife, you know, I really like it here. This place suits us. Everywhere we look, we see the results of our own labor. This house has been shaped to our needs and taste, and I really feel comfortable here. I think we'll stay. Well, you know what? In like manner, when Christ, by his Spirit, takes up resident within us, he finds the moral equivalent of mounds of trash, black and silver wallpaper, and a leaky roof. And he sets on doing what? turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home in which he is comfortable. Now that means that he'll have to do a lot of cleaning up, right? When he finds out what's in your heart, or he already knows that, when you find out 
what's in your heart and uh, he shows you it then there's going to have to be quite a few repairs matter of fact there may needs to be uh, a demolition project going on and a great expansion project going on but his aim is clear when the Lord comes into our life. He wants to take residence in our hearts as we exercise faith in him. And make no mistake, when Christ first moves in our lives, he finds us in a very bad state of repair. And it takes a great deal of power to change us. In fact, if you remember from chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, the power that God it takes to change us is resurrection power. That it takes resurrection power. That is why Paul prays for power. He asks that Christ, he asks really that God may so strengthen us by his power in our inner being that Christ may genuinely take up residence within us, transforming us into a house that pervasively reflects his own character. See, this idea of getting rid of the old and the dirty and adopting the new and the clean to put off the old and the soiled garments of our old life and to put on the new garments that are radiant with Christ's glory another way of, of putting it Paul puts it like this in Galatians 4.19 my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you he's talking to believers here see so this is the prayer request is that the Lord would make the your heart a residence he can permanently indwell in and so that means the spirit of God will bring to your mind and to your attention things that you need to get out and how do you do that? By the power of the Spirit. You get them out. You put your sin to death. You put bad habits to death. You put sinful behaviors to death. You, you get out things that you know the Lord doesn't want there anymore, and the Lord gives you the power to do that. Why? You're, making, you're cleaning up the house for the one who takes residence in your heart, and that's Christ. And don't you want Christ to have full residency in your heart? See, that's what we don't do in the beginning, and that's what this text is talking about, and that's why we so much need this prayer request. Now, there is one example that I want to take you to this morning, and that's found in Revelation chapter 3. And this was when the Lord was speaking to the churches in Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 3, this is the church of Laodicea. These are believers in this church. They are, uh, this is a church. And remember in, in Revelation, the, the Lord Jesus Christ walks amongst the candlesticks of the church. He's walking in, in and among the church and he's examining them. He's looking at what he could commend them for and he's looking at what he can condemn them for. And in this case of the church of Laodicea, we find that Christ warns this church about two different things. Number one, spiritual indifference and spiritual complacency. Indifference being this lack of interest, this, this lack of care, this, this lack of concern specifically about their relationship with Christ. And then this complacency means that 
they are self-satisfied. They're, they're, they're satisfied where they're at. And they're really not aware of the dangers that are going on around them because they, they seem to not be lacking anything material. See, another way to say this is that the sense of the need for the Lord is gone. The church could be characterized here by its complacency and its being comfortable in its culture and with its own success. But you know what? The Lord has no commendation for this church. He has only condemnation for the church. If you notice in verse 15 of Revelation 3, he says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. See, the Lord knows their real spiritual condition. Even if they can't discern it themselves, the Lord with his piercing, piercing eye of judgment comes and he says not to be cold or hot is a very precarious position to be in. A neutral position is no position at all. In fact, there's no convictions to take a stand on. They're half-hearted. They're double-minded. They're indecisive. They're tolerant of everyone's opinion and just comfortable with the status quo. That is not acceptable in real Christianity. So Jesus Christ diagnoses their condition in verse number 16. Look what he says. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, in verse 16, I will spit you out of my mouth. A lukewarm beverage is not the norm. In fact, it's, it's quite outside the norm. Either people order a hot drink or a cold drink. Usually when something is lukewarm, something has gone drastically wrong. In fact, it could be, too, in the background of why he's writing this to this church, is that uh, it could be in contrast between the hot medicinal waters of Heropolis and the cold, pure waters of Colossae. Remember, Laodicea had this long six-mile aqueduct. By the time the water got to them from the cool springs, it was lukewarm. And if you couldn't cool it down or heat it up, then, of course, this is, is in contrast to a spiritual condition. Jesus says that that's an irritation to the stomach. It's a kind of irritation that in the natural realm of the body if the natural realm of the body, something comes into the stomach and the stomach rejects it, what happens? Vomiting, hurling, whatever adjective you want to give to it, all right, it comes out because it's rejected. The stomach contents are rejected and, of course, they're thrown away from the body because of what's going on and so on. So all the, the picture here is how nauseating and distasteful this condition is to our Lord. He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That God is disgusted with lukewarm believers, and if the condition persists, he will vomit them out. That's what he's saying there. So if there is a failure in this church of repentance, then this church must perish, for it is better for this type of church to go out of existence because it, uh, it's really no longer a New Testament church. It's a social club that people feel good and safe and comfortable and don't feel like they need more of the Lord. 
So the reason for this tepid con- condition is found in verse 17, where he says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. So there is, they are saying something. They are saying, we have become somebody. We have arrived at stability. We are self-supporting. We are self-sufficient. We are proud of what we have accomplished. In other words, this church was materially rich. And they assumed that because they were materially rich, they were spiritually rich. And of course, that's not the case. The church may acquire large, beautiful buildings and facilities. They may develop special programs of all kinds. They may feature a certain musicians and artists and even gain measure of political power. They, so they conclude, we don't, we don't need anybody's help. We've arrived. They boast of their pride, their self-sufficiency, but they are rendered blind because this is the prognosis of the Lord in verse 17. He says, And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He didn't just leave it at one descriptive word. He gave a whole bunch of descriptive words. If you don't get that, the Lord is using five adjectives to describe their spiritual condition and of course material riches can breed spiritual poverty which leads to false assumption of their spiritual well-being and that's exactly what took place here so in other words they don't feel the need to pray that their heart would be strengthened in their inner man to have Christ dwell in their heart and take full and permanent residence there they are not concerned about that and that is a great concern of the lord because he finally says in verse number 19 this is the challenge he gives them number 18 he says listen you need you need to buy from me and not buy from other places and then you need to you have a disposition toward unrighteousness and you have a disposition to lack discernment on spiritual matters so you must see your spiritual blindness and repent and receive spiritual healing from Christ alone. And what does Christ tell them? Well, it's chastisement if you don't repent. In verse number 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. So he's challenging their inner man. He's challenging their inner man to zealously repent from their wretchedness and miserable and poor and blind and naked spiritual condition and come back to him. In fact, Decisive repentance will end all lukewarmness. The Lord is expressing the love of a friend in this passage so that real believers will become distinguishable from the lukewarm pretenders around them. So zeal is placed on the lukewarmness. And so lukewarmness doesn't have to be terminal, in other words. Why? Because the Lord provides a way. And that way is to repent. 
But I want you to notice the verse he uses to call them back in verse Revelation 3.20. Now, this verse is not an evangelistic verse. Jesus is knocking at your heart's door, so open the door and let him in. That's not what it means here. He's talking to believers here who has fallen on bad spiritual times and he says this in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. It's the same imagery giving in, in Ephesians. The Lord wants to come and in, dwell in our heart. Now, of course, this has a present application and it has an eschatological application. Right? But I'm not looking at the eschatological, I'm looking at the present application. And the present application is this. If you want a cure to your spiritual malady and the diagnosis that Jesus Christ gave you, then you need to repent. And how you do that is the Lord is there waiting for you to repent. And when you do, and you hear his voice and you open the door, he will come into you and he will dine with you. Now, there's nothing more of a great picture of someone sitting down with someone and dining with them. You get to know a lot about a person when you do that. Matter of fact, that's an intimate, many times, interaction when you are showing you're friends with the person, you're right with the person, and so therefore you're enjoying a meal together because the Lord says, not only uh, will I come into him and dine with him, but he will with me. That it's, it's a mutual back and forth thing. This is not just the Lord. See, when you're standing against the Lord in sin, it's just you. But it, when we repent of our sin and get those things right, then it's that relationship is restored. That back and forth going on, the reality of the Lord in our life becomes keen to us. So, in other words, these Christians have a spiritual life. But it's very poor. And it's immature. And they need to grow. And Christ is not the center of their heart. And they don't know him in a deep way. And so then Christ has not settled down in their hearts. So I think we all can be very convicted about what is being said here in Scripture, in not only in this revelation, but in the Ephesians passage, that this is what your prayer ought to be as soon as you leave this place today. As soon as you go home. This is a prayer that we should all be praying for ourselves and for each other. That our Father may grant us out of His wealth to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Why? So Christ may take up residence within us, transforming us into a house that reflects his own character. In other words, the goal to all healthy truth and doctrine that you respond to is always godliness. It is never sinfulness. It's always godliness. Not that we go around boasting, saying, I'm godly, because sometimes we can't evaluate ourselves on that, but it's, it's this desire in our inner man to want more of what God has for us. It never goes away. You go to bed with it, you wake up with it, you, you, you drive in the car with it. I need to know more of the Lord. That's his prayer request. And specifically, I'm not getting there today, is to know the 
height and depth and width and breadth of Christ's love. Do we really know that? Does it consume our minds? Is it there all the time? It should be. That's the point. It should be. Because you know what? It's going to prevent you from sinning. If you love the Lord, you will not want to do something that offends Him. You won't even want your thoughts to go somewhere it ought not to go, and you're the only one who knows it goes there. Because you know that even in your thoughts, you can sin and offend God. Those who, who even look upon a woman to have sex with her they commit adultery see the Lord knows the thoughts see we don't want to go there we don't want to live there we don't want to live on that realm in fact we are disgusted when we, uh, when we find ourselves at that place so see in other words when you know the love of Christ you cannot live the way you used to you cannot go back to where you came from you cannot do the things you used to do you cannot live a lifestyle that is displeasing to the Lord. You cannot do it. You understand that? You cannot do it. So here's the prayer. Pray this for you. Pray this for me. And I'll pray that for you, which I already have. Because there's nothing more delightful. There's nothing more beautiful than seeing God transform you right before the other people's lives. There's nothing more beautiful to see God restoring marriages that have been, have been destroyed by selfishness and sin and all other sins. There's nothing more beautiful than seeing two people come together who are now in Christ and now want to work out their life to be pleasing to the Lord. And they're stumbling around in it, but they're growing and you see it and their desire is to please the Lord in all things. And that's what drives them every day. That's what they're thinking about. See, there's nothing more beautiful than that. And so that's where this prayer is leading all of us as believers. That Christ may be a dominating factor in the whole of your life. Controlling it and directing it. That Christ may be Lord of your will that he may be Lord of your affections, that he may be Lord of all your desires, that he may be Lord of all your plans and all your goals. And if it doesn't include the Lord, you want it to include the Lord now. See, that's what he's praying. And that's, believe me, as I look at the passage like this, I says, Lord, I need this prayer request for me. I want to know more of you. That's why Paul keeps saying, I want to know more of you. And what? The power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering. I want to know more. I don't know enough. The things that I thought I knew that I put a lot of treasure in, it's all on a garbage pile over here. I don't want that anymore. I want you, Lord. I want a relationship with you. I want to walk with you. I want to talk with you. I want to experience reality with you every day in my life. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to do. See, that's where the Spirit of God is bringing anyone who is a genuine believer. He'll never leave you where you once were, ever. And you know what? He will move heaven and earth to get you moving. 
And you may be stubborn and dug in and settled in your little life like the Laodiceans and he will come knocking at your door. I'm standing at the door. You're one of my children. But I'm not going to put up with this behavior. I'm not going to put up with your tolerance of sin. I'm not going to put up with your lukewarmness. I'm not going to put up with your straddling the fence. I'm not going to put it up with what's going on in your life. And so either you repent or I'm going to bring discipline upon you. That's what he says to us. And when we listen and we have ears to hear and we open the door, then see, we, we discover our experience of having more of Christ. You cannot have your sin and have Christ too. You understand that? You cannot. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I pray, Father, that you would grant out of your wealth, that means, Lord, there's no end to us asking this. We'll never exhaust your wealth in this area, that you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner man. So, Lord, our inner man is always seeking you is always desiring more of you is always and continually being transformed by you so christ may take up residence within us transforming us into a house that reflects lord jesus your character that we would become more christ-like that is your goal that's your purpose and you will accomplish it lord i just pray that you would make us willing recipients of that and that we would know the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love we would know that and I pray Lord as we go on in this passage and in, even during this week this would be our prayer request and Lord we, wouldn't, we want to see the results of it we want to see you transform us we want, to, we want to see you make us what you want us to be and I pray that you would do that. Thank you, Lord, that you hear us. Thank you, Lord, that you, have, you will do this by your power. And thank you, Lord, that we would do it trusting by faith that the Spirit of God will accomplish this for the sake of the glory of your name and us being made and transformed into Christ. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.